For the week of January 15th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 604, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news making headlines around the entertainment world. In a very rainy Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. Why am I soft in the middle when the rest of my life is so hard? Where's my wife and family? What, what, what is up? wrong with you? What, you're supposed uh, to introduce yourself. I'm from. I'm singing from South Africa. I'm, of course, singing American music by, by Paul Simon, recorded in part in South Africa. This is Michael Geltz, back from Africa, back from South Africa, back from Cape Town and Stellenbosch. I'm back in America. It was a long two weeks, but here we are. I made fun of Sperling. I have to apologize. Sperling would go all over the world. I'd say you're in wealthy parts of the world, developed parts of the world. How could you possibly not get Wi-Fi so you could do the, oh, I'm in Cape Town and I can't get Wi-Fi. <laughs> All right, I get yeah. it. <laughs> we also have yeah, rolling power outages. Uh, it was fascinating. Yeah, that's the craziest. Like, why were they rolling power outages? We've had them for years because the grid is not strong enough. They don't have a stable power system and to hold off on the load to make sure that the there's no huge surges in demand. They rotate through the country, different areas and different days of the week. Like, okay, you, the Monday, your power is going to be out from 10 p.m. to 12.30 a.m. Tuesday, your power will be out from 4 a.m. to 6.30. On Wednesday, from 2 to 4.30, you know. And it just varies, goes about by region by region, just to make sure there's never too much peak demand because they do not have a strong enough system. And it's summer there, so of course there might be some well, need for that. Well, this happens year-round. It's also, you need it okay. when you're cold in the winter <laughs> yeah true right so i'm back from south africa nice to be here and i'm uh, excited to do the show sorry we missed out you're going to be in sundance next week you're going to try and set it up i won't make fun of you if you can't make it happen yeah the problem is of course uh at sundance it's uh it's a ski town and uh it's you know here's what i've noticed about wi-fi the more posh the place, the more high-end the place, the worse the Wi-Fi. And that's because I guess like, like you know, they're, they're like, well, of course the people coming here are senior executives. They have people to do their emails. They don't need, <laughs> they don't need Wi-Fi. Well, I was in Stellenbosch, like the, the, the wine region of, of, of uh, South Africa, extremely wealthy area. I'm staying at a winery and a little cottage. I never dreamt that they wouldn't have generators for each cottage, but nope. Uh, 10 p.m. at night when the power went out, we had no power, no Wi-Fi, no TV. Thank God it wasn't, uh, you know, really cold or really hot. Otherwise, it would have been awfully uncomfortable for that three hours in the middle of the night. We had little portable lights to place places so that you could just turn them on and see to get around the house if you needed to when the power was out. It was crazy. But, you know, that's a lot of the world. It just reminds you how lucky you are. That's true. And Channel 4 is lucky. Why is that? Well, because they've been saved. And Channel 4, of course, is in the United Kingdom. Uh, now, I, I recall we kind of mentioned this, that they wanted to sell off Channel 4. They yeah, the, being, the conservative uh, the government. government. The conservative government wanted to get dump Channel 4. It was a dumb idea. Nobody really wanted it except for the far right. Uh, and the channel is very important because it greenlit shows but didn't insist on owning them entirely or even in part. So they were able to make indie producers a really healthy part of the British television and movie industry system. They could depend on this one outlet, at least, where they could get stuff happening and still own it. So they could build up equity and build up a library and build up value. Uh, so they were really upset that Channel 4 might be gone, but it's rescued, it's saved. The government said, yeah, never mind, nobody 
thought that was a good idea. The problem is, while doing that, they've also said they're going to allow Channel 4 to do more stuff in-house. So this is kind of like the TV networks in America. When they started to own their own show, suddenly they didn't want to do anything unless they owned at least part of it, if not all of it. And you could see more and more as the years went on how suddenly 90% of what CBS was doing, CBS owned. 90% of what NBC did, NBC owned, at least in part and usually a majority. Channel 4 starting off slow, but I'm afraid that's just going to be the same pattern there. But at least for the moment, it's saved. And speaking of the UK... Well, you know, just like like Friends uh, was owned by Warner Brothers. ER was owned by Warner Brothers, but it, it was on NBC. Nowadays, that would be hard to do. Well, they didn't have their own network at the time. So they were an independent producer that was offering it up to networks. So when you create a good show, people will always be willing to carry it. Uh, We have lots of people with shows on other networks. Uh, Paramount is one that wants to be a big provider to other people. Uh, Warner Brothers does not have a big network right now, but they have HBO Max. So, you know, yes, but, uh, you know, these things still happen, but it was good in the UK to have a channel that could make stuff happen with government backing and not insist on owning it. That may be a thing of the past, unfortunately. But one of our listeners was talking about UK TV. That's listener Tom Phillips. He wrote in to say that the show we were talking about Trigger Point, a drama from Jed Mercurio. He said, yes, the show is okay, but it's a pallid attempt to stop his action masterpiece line of duty. He says the first four seasons in particular are golden, and you can find them on BritBox if you're here in America. And in the UK, of course, you have much easier access to it, and you probably know the show already. So that's cool. I'll be certain to check out Line of Duty. I have not checked out any of Prince Harry's interviews or read the book, but everybody's been talking about it. And I loved watching the media cover this. Prince Harry did interviews with everybody, exclusive interviews with ITV, an exclusive interview with 60 Minutes, an exclusive interview with Good Morning America, an exclusive, (laughs) that's a lot of exclusives. But anyway, the media was like, yeah, everybody's bored by Prince Harry. It's too many interviews. He's everywhere. We're sick of him. People are turning against them. Oh, but then we got news about their Netflix stock. It grew significantly in week two. It opened to 1.2 billion minutes viewed. In week two, it was 1.6 billion minutes viewed. So obviously people weren't bored by that right away, though I would assume pretty much everyone has seen it who wants to, and it will go way down in week three. And then, just as the media was trying to insist we didn't care anymore, the book actually came out and it hit stores. Spare by Prince Harry sold 400,000 copies in the UK. It sold Sold 1 million copies in the US and Canada. It is the fastest selling nonfiction book in perhaps history. Certainly it is in the UK. It looks like it is in the US. You know, if you want to write a book and you're British, make sure your first name is Harry because the Harry's rule, whether you're Harry Potter or Prince Harry, you really know how to sell books. Yeah, well, uh, my advice for him would be, uh, why not take a vacation for like a year or two? Because Again, the book just sold the fastest nonfiction selling book in history. Whatever yeah. you may think about, you're sick of it. That's because you're watching too much of it. He's, you know, whatever's happening, people are interested. They're watching the documentary. They are reading the book. And the reviews hey, are the all Kardashians over the place. Sell too, so well, know, that's, that's a successful business. That's not who I want to yeah. be, but you know, I'm sure they will lay a little low now. But they've gotten their story out, and people are eating it up. But anyway, that's where the media is in the UK. What's happening in the rest of the world? What are we going to talk about this week on Showbiz Sandbox? Well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are happy to be back, of course, and I'm happy we can blame Michael for a change, actually, about that (laughs) instead of me. Uh, We've got two weeks of box office to cover, and it's no surprise that the big story is still taking, you know, it's, it's, it's over on Pandora. It's Avatar. 
way of water. It's approaching $2 billion worldwide. So uh, just, you know, another billion to go and it'll, uh, you know, break even. Uh, It's (laughs) definitely awards season. And now we're getting news from the awards that matter, like nominations from the directors and producers and cinematographers guild. And of course, SAG. So the actors are are, uh, doing their stuff, but who's doing their job and who's just kind of like giving out gold stars to every film in sight. You know, everybody gets like a participation trophy. Oh, and the Golden Globes happened, by the way. (laughs) In streaming, Netflix passed a major milestone and mon dieu, it's a big one. On Inside Baseball, we'll look at a lot of music industry stories, especially the evidence that streaming is more popular than ever, but the biggest hits are not. So that's a little teaser for you. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Gills to fill us in on last week's box office and how James Cameron is just sitting back counting money. He can't make Avatar 3. He's counting all of his money. (laughs) Uh, He's already making Avatar 3 and 4 and 5. Anyway, we're looking at box office around the world. We have links to our uh, comm score and our show notes. We've got two weeks of box office presented, but we'll just focus on this week, the week ending January 15th. In North America, it's a holiday for Martin Luther King Day on Monday, January 16th, when we're recording, and we're getting more box office for North America, but we're just going to report on the total box office basically throughout the last seven days and on Sunday. Next week, we'll include some of the Monday stuff in our totals for that week because that's how we normally do it. But we're looking at box office around the world, and the number one film is, of course, Avatar, The Way of Water, $190 million this week. It's at $1.89 billion worldwide. It's Monday now, and it has now officially crossed the $1.9 billion mark. This movie will obviously barrel past $2 billion. It's been sort of ahead of the original Avatar every step of the way, but of course it's a little front-loaded because it's a newer movie. So the first Avatar ran and ran and ran and ran and ran. They're saying maybe this movie is starting to slow down, and we'll see the first one sort of outpace it eventually. No one's quite expecting this one to match the first one, probably not even close, though you're already over $2 billion, you're doing just fine. So this movie's raking in lots of money. You joked about it not being profitable yet. In fact, a lot of the trades reported that James Cameron was pretty smart. He was sort of downplaying expectations, saying, look, you know, you can't expect this movie to match the first film, but if we can get to $1.4 billion, I know we'll be profitable, and then we can make more movies. He was eyeing Dune, which was successful, not as successful as this movie, but the part two hadn't been approved for weeks and weeks and weeks. Uh, The director, Denis Villeneuve, was being, you know, sort of on pins and needles until the studio finally said, yes, you can make the second part of the film. Now, James Cameron, they're clearly ready to go ahead with parts three, four, and five. It's all going to happen. They'll probably cost less than this one for various complicated reasons. And when all is said and done, we'll probably have three more movies and they'll all be hugely profitable. But this one Well, as Patrick von Sikorsky pointed out in our uh, in the Marquee newsletter mm-hmm. uh, over at Celluloid Junkie, which you su- should subscribe to, by the way, uh, he said, you know, the, the the first copy of Windows 98 cost $100 million. The second copy cost five because of all the development that went into it. <laughs> so yes, the, the cost of the movie is sunk. Once you've spent it, you've spent it. And then every time someone goes to the movie, you know, you're making more money. You're, you haven't spent any more on it. It's just one one-time fee of 
maybe $300 million, maybe $250 million. Depends how you space it out, given the technology they developed that's going to be used in Avatar 3, 4, and 5. Though, knowing Cameron, he'll probably come up with new things to figure out and new technology to develop. So he'll keep spending money, no doubt about that. So it's at $1.9 billion worldwide as of Monday. China, some very good news. Um, it's been extended into the Lunar New Year. Very few Hollywood films have been approved for China. Very few have had a heads up well enough in advance to promote their film. This movie, Avatar The Way of Water, started off a little slowly in China, but it's been picking up steam and doing very well. They keep upgrading where they think the movie's going to end up. And now that it's being allowed to play through the Lunar New Year, which is a big, big movie going week, um, that's great news for this movie. That means, you know what, they've got a much bigger chance of collecting up more and more dough. So that's the number one movie around the world. At number two is Antonio Banderas in Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, another $50 million. That's at $250 million worldwide. That movie also got an extension uh, in China. Guess what? They need product. You want to have your movie theaters open? You want people to go? You want to regain your worldwide box office you know, territory uh, uh, title? You need to have more movies from Hollywood because there aren't enough Chinese films right now to make that up. At number three is Megan, the evil doll flick, another $46 million. This has been a huge hit in the last few weeks, and it's at $91 million and counting. It only costs $12 million to make. Right below that is the expansion of the Tom Hanks film, A Man Called Otto. It made $20 million this week. It's at $33 million and counting. It opened very nicely going wide. And the headlines were saying, how did this movie beat, a, how did this Tom Hanks film beat expectations and prove so popular when it opened wide? Uh, Tom Hanks? <laughs> you know? I was going to say, I've got two words. Both of them are pronouns. Tom <laughs> and Hanks. <laughs> right below that is Better Man, a Chinese comedy. This is about a macho man transported to a world where women dominate, and he has to learn to, to see his softer side and, and be supportive of his spouse. It made $15 million this week. It's at $34 million and counting. By the way, we have no strong box office figures for a lot of movies from China, Japan, or Korea. If you didn't break the top 10, worldwide on the com score we're kind of blind flying blind here so there are a fair number of movies that should have box office reported like some indian films and others and they're just not going to be on our list this week because we don't have the info but we do have a japanese anime film called the first slam dunk about a female basketball team that made another 15 million dollars it looks like it's at 66 million dollars and counting then there's a new guy Ritchie film um it's it's opened up overseas. It's called Operation Fortune, Ruse de Gare. And it made $13 million this week. It's at $20 million and counting. It was scheduled for like a year ago, but the central characters are involved with the Ukrainian mob. And they thought, you know, while Ukraine's being bombed, not the best look. <laughs> so they sort of delayed it for a year. We're all loving Ukraine now. And uh, the movie stars includes Carrie Elwes and Hugh Grant. So it's got a big name cast and it's doing pretty good overseas. I'm not sure what the budget is if you know tell us yes you can write to us dirt at showbizsandbox.com is our email address that's d-i-r-t at showbizsandbox.com you can also call and leave us a voicemail the number to call is 888-567-SAND that's 888-567-7263 we'll play your voicemail on a future episode you can also of course find us on twitter we're at showbizsandbox is our handle we're also on facebook where you can like our page at facebook.com slash showbizsandbox however before you 
write in or call and 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 comment on how I said Tom Hanks name is a pronoun. I know I got that wrong. It's a proper noun. I knew as soon as I said it I was like, "Oh, I meant, you know, the other p noun. The other p noun." <laughs> it's a dangling participle? No. Speaking oh, of the was... letter p, that's the first letter in plain, the Gerard Butler flick, a new action film where Gerard Butler says, look, Liam Neeson, you're not the only guy who can make down and dirty action films. He did. It opened up to $11 million since it cost about 20 to $25 million. That's a great start. It also got pretty good reviews for that kind of film. And that's it for the really big making money-making movies. Uh, right below that is Whitney Houston's I Want to Dance with Somebody, which made $8 million, despite pretty friendly reviews. It's not doing that well at the box office. It's at about $50 million worldwide. A remake of House Party, the 1990 comedy classic, uh, opened flat at $4 million. Uh, there are some Oscar hopefuls chugging along. The Fablemans is at $18 million. The Whale with Brendan Fraser, that's at $11 million. And he gave a very emotional acceptance speech at the Golden Globes. That should help him come Oscar time. And moving down a little bit, Matilda the Musical is almost all played out, but $30 million dollars from that one territory of you know uk and ireland that's uh, serious money for that country uh, so that movie netflix could have made a lot of money worldwide if they'd gone farther with that um, uh, yeah i don't understand this is a perfect example of a movie that should have been released in theaters scoop up all that theatrical revenue uh and then maybe even while it's still in theaters then put it on netflix you know maybe wait like I don't know, 17, 18, 19, 20, 25, 30 days. I, I don't, I don't think that's enough. I, I say 45 days is the magic number. Uh, 17 days is not enough to make money at the box office. And if it's still going strong, you delay it. Nobody, nobody's going to be upset at Netflix if they see Matilda the Musical appear two months from now rather than today or Christmas Day. No, they but would. you know what they would do? Like me, what? they'd be like, oh, but that eventually it's going to, ha- you know, Netflix is going to have it. I'm not going to cancel this month because next month Matilda will be on. And if mm-hmm. it wasn't, it would be the next month. And then you'd get me for three more months because. <laughs> well, we talked I mean? about China. Um, the Chinese box office ended up at about $4.4 billion, of course, due to COVID lockdowns, a serious lack of product, both local and international. Even that titles that were released from the U.S. were given last minute notice. And so they couldn't really promote them. Uh, the global box office is just shy of $26 billion. And as we've said, it looks like maybe North America will recover more quickly than a lot of the rest of the globe. Uh, Avatar has been doing well almost everywhere except Japan. Avatar is not big in Japan. That country is perhaps the only territory that has seriously rejected the movie. It has way underperformed the first film. It's got to be a surprise to Cameron. I'm sure he's looking at the cultural tea leaves to figure out what the heck's going on and why the Japanese were not down with Avatar, the way of water. But that's about the only stumble for that film. Uh, Speaking of stumbles... Uh, one of our readers wrote in, Joe Gaze. He said, I love the show. Uh, that said, did we hear a true lie on the last Showbiz Sandbox? Sorry for the pun, but I know this won't be the only one on the show. Hey, we're the ones with the pun. Hey, he hey, hey I resemble that remark. Yeah. He says, true lies, by the way, is not a big stumble for James Cameron. He says, it was the number three film in 1994 behind The Lion King and Forrest Gump. If it's good or not, well, that's another story, but it was not a stumble when looking at the box office. And he is, of course, absolutely right. 
It cost about $120 million to make, and it grossed $380 million worldwide. It was certainly a stumble artistically, uh, but it's really the abyss you have to go back to where that cost about $45 million to make and only grossed $90 million. Nobody lost their shirt on that film, but that was not the typical success story that we were used to seeing from James Cameron, a pretty much unblemished track record except for the abyss, including True Lies and then on to Titanic, Avatar, and of course... uh, Oh, and of course, don't forget Terminator 2, Judgment Day. (laughs) That was a massive hit and a great, great action film. Aliens and Terminator 2, Judgment Day, classic action films. And then True Lies, Avatar, The Way of Water, and Avatar being massive hits. He now has three of the six biggest films of all time worldwide. Avatar, Avatar, The Way of Water, and Titanic. That's pretty amazing. But going back to the box office, there are some notable news lower down. There's a big Indian film that opened up here in America. It hit the top 10 and grossed a million dollars. I forgot to play the trailer and find out how to pronounce it. Uh, But it's a story about two friends. One's a fisherman and he's helping people smuggle stuff in. And the other guy's this egotistical jerk, but he's trying to talk him out of doing this bad stuff. It's called Walter Veraya. Ugh, sorry about that, people. But that opened very strongly in the US. I'm sure it opened strongly in India. If you know a box office chart that we can go to for the entire Indian box office and not just the Bollywood industry, do let us know. Um, but when we get info from like the numbers or box office mojo or these other websites, they're always a day or two behind when when it comes to Japan and India and Germany and so on. So we're really dependent on the trades reporting on these movies, and they're not always doing it like they did in this week, because I guess they're off. And in, in Indie yeah. Fair, hoping to be Oscar hopefuls, Women Talking opened very strongly. The terrific director, Sarah Polly, who also has a good new nonfiction book out, the, her movie opened up very strongly. And Oscar hopeful St. Omer, which hopes to be up for an international Oscar, that opened very weakly on 245 screens with a per theater average of $255. The plan was to open wide, quote unquote wide, for a, a small independent or uh, foreign language film. And that was to gain visibility and then they would shrink the screen count back down and then they'd go back up. That was the plan, but I don't think it worked out. Yeah, no. And there was like very little of a, you know, in the way of a marketing campaign. But that said, uh, San Omer is supposed to be a phenomenal movie. I've been trying to see it for quite a while. Yeah, I'd love to see it. It opened on 245 screens, but not in Birmingham, Alabama. That's what's happening at the theaters. What's happening at Apple? They've got movies. I just watched a movie on Apple, the Louis Armstrong documentary, Louis Armstrong's Black and Blues. Uh, it was okay. I'm very interested in Armstrong and jazz. It was sort of a bio of him and sort of focused on race and his image in the black community and the wider world and how that was complicated and interesting. I think they would have been best if they just focused on that, said, this is what we're talking about, rather than sort of doing a bio and sort of talking about his music and sort of mostly talking about the race issues. Uh, I think they should have zeroed in on that and just said, this, you, you know he's great, you know he's important, let's look at this, because it was sort of didn't do anything really well. Everything was just sort of okay. Didn't really get deep on anything, so uh, a bit of a missed opportunity, but a decent film, and I enjoyed watching it. But what else happened at Apple? Uh, well, uh, you know, Tim Cook, uh, he still is employed there. He checked for oh, the latest good. layoffs, and uh, yeah, he wasn't on the list. Uh, but he is, uh, he is going to take a smaller paycheck in 2023, I believe. He's going to cut his pay in half. 
Wow. $50 million. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so going, he got a lot of heat for getting a $100 million paycheck this year. And of course, not a paycheck. It's total compensation package. And he's, well, uh, let me cut that by 50%. That'll take me down to a measly $50 million. <laughs> That's after us finding out that Apple had a secret deal with China. They paid the Chinese government $275 billion over five years. Technically, they invested in businesses in China, but of course, the government and businesses are hand in hand, and uh, a fair number of them were ones, you know, totally controlled by the government, though pretty much every business is. And basically, they did this to say, hey, ease off on us. Stop pressuring. They were getting a lot of pushback from the government about Apple products and sales were slowing and they wanted to buy some time and keep their market share in China. And they did it. But at what price? I guess your soul. I don't know. <laughs> but I uh, guess you could say the same thing about the Golden Globes. I know you you uh, ooh, say the same thing. About that's right. The it's award season. And most of the guilds, I feel, have dropped the ball. All of them nominate like 20 or so films in all these different categories a lot of the time. So like the the costume people might say the five best period films, the five best fantasy and sci-fi films, the five best contemporary. It's like, you know, that's great. We understand the different challenges of all these genres, but they really need to buckle down and say, here are our top five movies overall, or even here are our top 10 films overall. But, you know, you can't just name 20 or 30 movies and expect us to pay attention. So you know what? We're not going to. We're only going to look at the people who buckled down and said, these are the best films of the year, like the cinematographers. What did they say? They said, Bardo from Inuritu, Alejandro Gonzalez Inuritu, The Batman, Elvis from, of course, Baz Luhrmann, Empire of Light from Sam Mendes, and Top Gun Maverick. Those are the best shot films of the year, according to the cinematographers. So that's interesting. Um, did the editors do it? Where are the editors? I don't think they, uh, did they break down their list? Oh, dear me. Well, I do know, speaking of that, uh, we talked about editors as one of the guilds. I do know that Oscar-winning editor Mike Hill died at 73. He won the Oscar for editing Ron Howard's Apollo 13, Ron Howard's best film. Uh, and that makes sense that he edited that film because he edited 21 other Ron Howard films. He and his editor partner Daniel Hanley worked on Night Shift in 1983, which was his second film. He did Grand Theft Auto in the 70s. And they worked together with Ron Howard straight through 2015's In the Heart of the Sea. 32 years as a team working with Ron Howard on all his movies. So that's very cool. And so it's uh, nice to see collaborations like, like John Williams and Spielberg. And in this case, uh, these two guys and Ron Howard. And weirdly, when I was looking up these movies, Cocoon is lost in limbo. You can't stream it. You can't rent it. You can't buy it. Stuff always falls through the cracks, like Cocoon, though. That's a bizarre one. But the DGA, they also announced their best films of the year. And yes, they did name their best films, their best first-timers. Uh, so they split it up a little bit. But that's fair enough. Uh, who were their big top picks? The Banshees of Inishirin, Martin McDonough. Everywhere. Ev everything, everywhere, all at once. The, the Daniels. Daniels. The Fablemans. Steven Spielberg, Tar, Todd Fields, Top Gun Maverick, Joseph Kaczynski. 
Well done. Yeah, those are big movies. And then they named their first timers, the people who made their best breakthrough or debut film. Four of them are women, and one of them is a man who made a female-centric movie, one of my favorite films of the year. Those movies are After Sun, a terrific film uh, starring Paul Mescal, and that comes out on rental. You can rent it starting Tuesday, January 17th. I highly recommend it. It's a sad little film, but it's very good. Emily the Criminal, that's on Netflix, I think. Uh, that stars uh, uh, Aubrey Plaza. A, a terrific little movie happening that would be the french film right yes correct yes. it's a very good movie marina which i'm not familiar with and saint omer so uh that's very cool uh, that's a strong 10 movies there on that list and the pga of course the producer guild of america they also named their 10 best films of the year then they named their five favorite animated films and their uh, six or seven favorite docs so they you know it's fair enough when you're going to animated docs it's just when you're talking about movies overall you don't buckle down and say these are the best makeup this is the best costumed movie that i get a little upset but they did name their 10 best films of the year and they're pretty familiar stuff that will probably be seen on the oscar list aren't they yes they are avatar the way of water the banshees of initiating once again black panther Black Panther? Black Panther? Black Panther. <laughs> Black Panther. That's going to be my new film. Black, I'm, you know, I'm hoping people will confuse it and I'll get you know, some rollover Keep going, credit. keep going. Uh, uh, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, Elvis, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, The Fableman's Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery, Tar, Top Gun Maverick, and The Whale. Yes, yes. And they also named their favorite animated films of the year. Two of them are my favorite, Guillermo de Toro's Pinocchio and Turning Red. They also mentioned Marcel, The Shell, with shoes on, which was cute, but I wouldn't name it one of the best films of the year. And Minions, The Rise of Gru, and Puss in Boots, The Last Wish, which I've heard good things about and I need to check out. I have not watched it yet. Their docs will be familiar docs to a lot of people who love that genre. Fire of Love, Descendant, Navalny, The Territory, All That Breeze, Nothing Compares, Retrograde, a lot of familiar stuff. And then the SAG Award. They technically do not name a best picture. They name best ensemble, but that's their stand-in for the best picture. And all the movies are familiar, except there's a new one on the list, isn't there? Which movie is that? The the SAG Awards? Yeah. Uh, the, I would say the, the, the new one would be Women Talking. That's right. Uh, and a great ensemble. So and you, Babylon. And Babylon. Babylon. Is that the first mention for Babylon? I believe it is. Uh, Babylon, yes, of course, is. hurting at the box office. But SAG was happy to see so many people get work. <laughs> a lot of people in that movie. Babylon, The Banshees of Inishirin, Everything Everywhere, The Fablemans, and Women Talking, which has just opened up. I've heard good things from the people I know who've seen it. They really like it a lot. I'd love to see it, but it's not playing in Alabama yet. And, uh, you know, they've got other nominations. You can check it out. But we then had the Golden Globes, didn't we? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, ratings matter, which is uh, the reason they, they came back. There was many reasons they came back, but NBC didn't want to get sued because they had a 10-year deal or some like some eight-year deal. I can't remember what, how many years the deal was, ah. but it was a pretty big deal. And they, they kind of shunned them. Uh, NBC kind of put them in a corner last year. And this year, they, uh, they Everyone agreed said, to hold it for one year. Everyone said bygones <laughs> No, they agreed to hold it for one year only. It was a one-year deal. Uh, and that's really the only explanation for the rebirth of the Golden Globes. It's always, it's always been a TV special in search of a reason for being. Uh, and when the Globes were rocked by the 
hiding in plain sight evidence of both its racism and being a honeypot for people who barely counted as journalists. Its days were numbered, at least so we thought. Uh, no one would attend, we thought. No one would go. The Globes tried reforming and people laughed, but a TV special with big ratings is it's kind of too juicy to pass up. So everyone from Anna de Armas and Steven Spielberg committed to appearing. Red Hot comic Jared Carmichael, a.k.a. Rothaniel Carmichael, <laughs> agreed to host. And Variety did the official digital pre-show for the event, lending its actual journalistic integrity to the entire enterprise. I can tell you why that is. Money. Uh, no, uh, Variety is owned by PM. See the Penske Media Corporation, and they have bought into. Uh, they're trying. They're they're working out some kind of deal, basically, where PMC may take over the Golden Globes and basically, you know, along with Dick Clark Productions, basically oversee it and make sure that it's it's an, on the up and up. Well, that would be money. <laughs> they they want to make money off of it. Okay. Yeah. And then what happened? And then what happened? Steven Spielberg won. No, no, the ratings came out and the Globes had the second smallest audience ever. So everybody just, well, well, first of all, it was on a Tuesday. It was on a Tuesday because of uh, the the football game on Monday. Well, they could have chosen it to be whenever they wanted. You know, they chose Tuesday. Yeah. So here's what happened in the U.S. Uh, The National Football League decided to play 18 weekends instead of 17. And that 18th weekend was the weekend of the Golden Globe. So they had to push to Tuesday, which, frankly, I was out at a conference on Tuesday. I couldn't even watch it if I wanted to. Uh, People were working. (laughs) Yeah, it's like not a good day. That's why the Oscars moved to Sunday. They used to be Monday night every, you know, for decades were Monday night. And then they went, you know, nobody can actually watch this on Monday. Can we move to Sunday? And they did, and, and, and ratings went up for a while. And now, of course, nobody cares. Well, I wouldn't say nobody cares. Remember the uh, the uh, Academy Awards were one of the top rated entertainment shows of the year. Other than sports, you know, true. It's it's just the bar has been lowered in terms of how big you can be and how what counts as a success story. The bar has also been lowered in terms of social justice. UFC, you know, you uh, what's it called? The blah blah fighting championship. What's it called? United, Universal. What's the U stand for in UFC? Ultimate fighting um, champion. Ultimate. That's yeah. right. I was like, the head of that, he going with The this? head of that sports league is Dana White. And over New Year's Eve, he was seen in a video slapping his wife. She slapped him, and then he slapped her back. And basically, you heard crickets from owner uh, Endeavor, which owns the UFC, and Ari Emanuel, who has wildly shouted out others for not speaking up for social justice. But in this case, he was very, very quiet. And... I had this weird thought that perhaps this was a stunt. Why? Because they are launching a new sports league, and I'm putting sports in quote, called Power Slap, where people, you know how you stand there and you, you do the like, you slap somebody's hands, you did that as kids, you know, you try to quickly slap their hands and they try to pull them away before you can hit them. This is like slapping people in the face and you just keep hitting each other until somebody wins, which is not even a sport, of course, but they're actually launching this quote-unquote league as a sort of a spinoff of UFC. TBS has a a reality series about the launch of the league, and I thought, is this like a... a No, but it wasn't. They actually had a physical altercation over New Year's Eve, and... (laughs) 
as a friend of mine, Jason Page, said on the radio, he has a radio show where he covers sports. If this had happened in football or basketball or tennis or foot soccer, European football, any other sport, there would be a massive outcry. But almost nobody said anything about this for days and days. The fact that this man assaulted his wife in public and it was caught on video. Nobody said anything. It's like, do they just not care because it's UFC? I don't know. But it's important, I think, to say she also slapped him. and. You know, they assaulted each other. Her assault matters too. It's not like, oh, she's a girl and you shouldn't have hit her even though she... It's like neither of them should have hit the other. It is a big deal that she assaulted him in public. That's not acceptable either. And it's not like, well, he's the bad guy. They both did terrible things here. They're both in the wrong. Uh, and you don't... Violence is not acceptable from a woman or a man. So this is all a mess, but nobody seems to care. But the Cesars care, don't they? Well, let me ask you this. Does anybody care who won the Golden Globes? No, I don't think so. Um, I think Brendan. I think I think one award mattered. Uh, one or two supporting, awards. Mattered. Well, one or two people gave good speeches that touched people, and that's the entire raison d'etre of the Globes. You get to give a touching speech, and people go, "Oh man, I like him. I want him to win," or her. Right, and uh, I, I'm. Uh, why am I forgetting his name from Everything Everywhere All at Once? Uh, Kihu Kwan. Short round. I th- short round. Yeah, short round. I know he'll all forever be short round. He gave one of the best speeches I, I've seen in an award show. And, and Brendan uh, Fraser gave a very emotional speech, which was touching, though he said, you know, go to the light, which he meant very positively, but it always makes me think of Poltergeist, where, where she says, step into the light, look away from the light. You're yes. like, wait, what? Am I supposed to go into the light or stay away from the light? It's very confusing. But that was a, a very touching, emotional moment as well. Yes, those things can matter for the industry. People were there. But in general, do they indicate who's going to win? I don't think so. It can give you a little boost. Maybe someone will be more likely to check out everything everywhere all at once or the whale because they like the speeches. I think that's what really matters. And I think the guilds are the things that really matter. So that's what we try to focus on. Like uh, the Cesars, those matter. So yeah, they're they're going to, uh, the Cesar Awards are going to automatically bar any uh, bar honors for anyone under active investigation for a sex crime. Remember when like <laughs> just last year we, we were reporting where they were like, Oh, who cares? And you know, it's not the, it's an accusation. Uh, how, how do you like my bad French accent? Oh, I'm sure the French uh, love it. Yeah. I'm already getting, I'm, I'm already answering the email in my mind. Yeah. Uh, yes. This is a low bar, but thank goodness. You know, if you're actively being investigated for rape or some other sexual crime, yeah, maybe we shouldn't have you on a show and give you an award. I I think that's a reasonable step to take. People are innocent until proven guilty, but you don't have to give them a big awards while while there's an ongoing investigation. And I assume they mean active criminal investigation, but uh, who knows? But yes, that that seems a reasonable step to take. And you know what? If they're innocent, that's more important than winning an award, clearing your name and getting, you know, justified in the public media is more important than, you know, winning Best Supporting Actor or Actress. So that's good to see. And Amazon took steps. They were getting a lot of heat because Jeremy Clarkson is on a couple of their shows and had a few more in the works. He does the spinoff of Top Gear called The Grand Tour. He has a reality show entering his fourth season, I think, called Clarkson's Farm, where he like tries to farm and goes, wow, this is really hard. That's about it. But he had that grotesque 
hateful, dangerous, misogynistic column about Meghan Markle, where it just was a, a, a violent screed against her in the Daily Mail. Even the Daily Mail apologized, which it rarely did. Clarkson sort of apologized. And then he apologized again a lot more a few days ago because we found out Amazon was not happy. And in fact, they are cutting ties with him. They said, look, after these current seasons air, that's it. We're not in business with Jeremy Clarkson anymore. So, you know, they're not yanking the shows from the air, but they are saying this is this is the last we'll want to do business with him. But those are So we are not going to get any streaming uh ratings from Top Gear. <laughs> well, from from the Grand Tour, the Top Gear still goes oh, on, but that's in the yeah, UK. That's right. So that, you know, that is a streaming show. It's hard to get info on streaming stuff, but we do have some metrics. We do have some information. At Netflix, it's been reported they have doubled their Spanish TV originals from 2021 to 2022. They doubled the number of Spanish shows that they are making, and there's a good reason. They travel all over the world. There's a huge worldwide population of people who speak Spanish, and there's a lot of other people who are happy to to watch shows in Spanish, uh, even if that's not their first or even any language that they speak, like me, for example. Um, and now, this is the big thing. Most of the Netflix originals now come, when you look at their library, they come from outside the United States. More than 50% of their product is made, originates outside the U.S. U.S. content now constitutes less than half of its library of original productions. That's pretty big. They're making shows in Korean, in Japanese, in French, in Spanish, in German. They're making shows all over the world, and most of them are from all over the world and not the U.S. Now, caveat, if you look at English language shows and include England and Ireland and Wales, perhaps, and Australia, um, I imagine English language shows would still be over 50% of all their shows, but I didn't get a breakdown like that. And if you look at the most popular properties that were watched last year, nine of the 10 most watched properties worldwide on Netflix were from the US, and the 10th was The Crown. Now, two years ago, we had Squid Games, so there are always new shows breaking out. Uh, Squid Games did it two years ago. There have been French shows and Spanish shows that have been big hits, and others will be in the future, especially when you keep investing in those countries and making those shows. So that's still a big step. Most of their library of original stuff now comes outside the U.S., and that's a great thing to see. Would you say it's a big deal? I would indeed. Then it must be time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. I said that in one breath. Can you believe that? Our first story, you know, it's it's a real tough time for Broadway. Ticket prices are sky high. Tourists haven't returned in full force. And even a Hugh Jackman musical isn't a sure thing. I mean, the moment he steps away, the music man is over. Mm -hmm. Artie Fair struggled in long-running hits from The Phantom of the Opera to Dear Evan Hansen to off-Broadway staples like Stomp. They're all calling it a day. But amidst the gloom, there are still hits. I mean, maybe Broadway's becoming more like the movies. Big blockbusters continue to thrive and everything else is hurting. Case in point, Aladdin. Get that, Aladdin. The long-running show just passed the original Hello, Dolly to become the 20th longest-running show in Broadway Well-deserved. A really, well, really good show. And every time I've seen it, it's been in good shape. Really fun show. What, Aladdin? Yeah, it's or really good. Hello, Dolly? No, Aladdin. Yeah. No, yeah. Hello, Dolly is not that good. <laughs> <laughs> 
more recent hits are also clicking. If you survive, you thrive, I guess. Uh, over the holidays, Harry Potter and the Cursed Child grossed $2.6 million, the most for a play during one week in Broadway history. It's already the highest grossing play in history. The stripped down musicals Six and Chicago, which isn't stripped down, but has strippers in it, I guess. No, it's stripped uh, down. It's a, both, it's a pretty bare bone production. Leotards, simple oh, okay. backdrop. Yeah, Chicago is not an elaborate show. It's made on a dime. So, and, and it's, that's one reason it's been able to run so long. Oh, okay. Well, uh, they're setting house records along with uh, others. The good news? Well, Broadway can still produce hits. The bad news? There aren't many of them. So big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's a big deal. It's not a good trend, but the holiday week of Christmas and New Year hit $52 million in total. That's when Harry Potter set that record. That's the highest grossing week since the week of 2019, the last week of 2019. The Lion King hit $4.3 million. That's the highest one-week total ever. So numerous shows set house records like uh, Funny Girl. Uh, you know, prices keep going up. You've only got 1,900 seats to sell, but when you charge $300 for tickets, you make more money. So it's good to see that the long running hits can survive. It's a really hard time because there aren't enough tourists and there aren't enough locals to keep a new show running beyond, you know, a couple months. Uh, so I it's also incredibly expensive, like going to New York. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know you, you lived there and uh, will probably one day return to live there. Uh, it's incredibly expensive. Oh, yeah. I used to live there. It, it was Yes, it was expensive, but you could live there. I'm going to live in deep it's, Jersey when I move back. I, can't, I, couldn't, I could only afford to live in Manhattan because I wasn't paying rent. <laughs> yeah, I mean, now it's just you kind of go and you're like, everything is so expensive. Oh, yeah. It's just... Uh, well, speaking of uh, things that are depressing, this is sort of depressing. The 1968 film version of Romeo and Juliet is considered one of the best film adaptations of Shakespeare ever done. It's certainly director Franco Zeffirelli's claim to fame, although I guess 400 blows, would that not no, also No, that's count? not Zeffirelli. That would be Francois oh, Truffaut. Oh, I'm getting them mixed yeah, up. Yeah, Zeffirelli right. did a fair number of operas that he might claim, but is, in, in terms of movies, this is certainly his peak. Well, now it turns out the young stars at the time were lied to by the director and pressured into filming a nude sex scene. At the time, uh, Olivia Husey, or Hussey, is it Hussey? I think, I don't know. Uh, she was just 16 and Leonard Whitting was 17. They were told this prestige production would contain no nudity. But on the last day, Zeffirelli pushed them to film love scenes in the nude. They say the late filmmaker promised no nudity would be seen, but nonetheless, it was necessary. And if they didn't, the film would, you know, it would be a flop. They caved, and of course, the film contained shots of uh, his bum and her breasts. No big deal, except it was nudity, and they were kids. The film has been screened in high schools ever since, or at least until the new version with Leonardo DiCaprio and Claire Dane showed up. Uh, and neither actor ever made anything of their careers. A California amnesty law allowed them to file a massive lawsuit. They've kind of uh, got rid of the amnesty law. Big deal or big whoop? Well, it's probably a big whoop in terms of its implications. Is it a harbinger of more things to come? Probably not, because it's a fairly unique situation. I don't think there are that many examples in the past where you can say, look, this was done without, you know, with this sort of situation. Uh, but I said that, and then The Guardian 
newspaper, we have a link in our show notes, has a story about the history of teen actor nudity in cinema. A lot of it in Hollywood, a lot of it in Europe. Uh, you know, everything from Blue Lagoon to, you know, all sorts of stuff. And you go, wow, yeah, there's a lot more of it than I thought. Legal experts weighing in on one of the stories said, no studio would film this movie today with underage actors. You would have people who were 18 playing younger. You would not have underage people, people who were minors, doing this. Uh, and when you hear the actors talking about how they, you know, they felt they never did anything with their careers. They sort of felt used and they've defended the movie over the, oh, it was no big deal. It's Europe. We're, uh. And then they now say, no, I actually feel taken advantage of. That's classic. That's what happens when you're abused or you're taken advantage of. You feel you need to defend it or justify it, or you want to, since it was upsetting, you want to make feel like it was worthwhile that you were taken advantage of. So you actually defend the movie. And now they're saying, you know what? Actually, we weren't. This should not have happened. So it's a shame because it's a wonderful film and their performances in particular. I mean, this is the version of Romeo and Juliet where you feel like these people want to have sex. They are so like their chemistry is so off the charts. Like, wow, this is like Romeo and Juliet. Like we really need to be with each other. You totally understand it. You don't question it at all. It's beautiful and romantic and sexy. And it's really depressing that, that it's not, uh, that it may have a sad backstory. And you know what? I was flying back to America. I watched a bunch of movies. Two things really depressed me. One, Romeo and Juliet was one of the movies offered. There's about like 100 movies on that list. But what are the chances it was Romeo and Juliet? Do you think someone said, hey, that's in the news. Let's put it on the air. I mean, how did that evolve? I mean, that's depressing. And that's how they feel. You know what? Every high school showed this movie for you know, 30 years, 40 years until... I saw it in high school. Right, yeah. I saw it in And there, every time is there they are exposed, showing, you know, seeing nude, which when you're 16 and 17 is embarrassing or difficult. And the other thing that depressed me was that The Parent Trap. The Parent Trap remake from 1998 was on the list of movies available to watch on demand on my flight back on Delta Airlines. The remake of The Parent Trap is celebrating its 25th anniversary. Now I feel really old. Oh, my God. I mean, Parent Trap remake is 25 years old. Dear God. God help me. <laughs> wait until we get to the music section. Oh. Just wait. What? But first, let's talk a little bit about some books. All right. Uh, Publishers Weekly has a list of the 25 best-selling books in the print format for 2022. The author with the number one bestseller, you might be asking yourself, no surprise, it's Kathleen Hoover, the author of fiction about women triumphing over difficult circumstances. Her book, It Ends With Us, sold 2.7 million copies. The second best-selling book? Uh, yeah, it's Catherine, uh, Kathleen Hoover's Verity, which sold 2 million copies. And the third best-selling book, you guessed it, Kathleen Hoover with 1.8 million copies of It Starts With Us. Shouldn't that be the other way around? It starts <laughs> with us and then it ends with us. In any case, uh, in fact, of the top 25 selling books, eight of them in 2022 are by Hoover. Wow. In all, the top 28 titles sold at least 500,000 copies each, with perennials like The Very Hungry Caterpillar and Oh, The Places You'll Go, rubbing shoulders with Michelle Obama's new book, The Light We Carry. Where the Crawdads Sing, one of the best-selling books in recent years, was now boosted by the film version. Sold, that sold another 1.8 million copies. Is all of this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it's a big deal. I wish we had more info. This does not include ebook sales. 
most of which happens on Amazon, oh. and that is a just a black hole of information. Uh, the individual publishers have to tell us our title sold this much copies in every format, and it takes a while to get some of that info. And obviously, they only tout the ones that are really big sellers. So we don't have ebook info, we don't have audiobook info, we don't have outlets not covered by BookScan. So just like our our streaming numbers are just a, a, a window into what's selling. This is a window of what's selling in fiction and nonfiction. And I wish we had a lot more info, but it's a start. And Kathleen Hoover really has been the story of the year. Every woman I know has read one of her books. That's barely an exaggeration. And when you look at the 25 books, the funniest title by far is the memoir, I'm Glad My Mom Died. <laughs> Yeah, um, yeah, that was. But a- it's a serious good book. And by the way, uh, a follow up to last week, we had talked about some books and stuff entering the public domain. It happens every year, and a couple things I didn't quite capture. One is that the final stories of Sherlock Holmes. I think we mentioned this, but these are the last yeah. two short stories entering the public domain. Which means for years, the estate has argued, or the people who control some of the Sherlock Holmes official stuff have said, "Look." You can't have that movie because those emotions of Sherlock Holmes didn't come up until the last short story, and that's still under copyright. So all those arguments are out the window now. You really can't hold that up anymore. A number of big movies are coming out. Metropolis, The Al Jolson Jazz Singer, Wings, uh, The King of Kings by Cecil B. DeMille, one of the great films of all time, Sunrise. That and Metropolis are two towering films. Wings, of course, and Sunrise were the two films that won the first Best Picture Oscars. Wings won for sort of Best Commercial Film, and Sunrise won for Best Artistic Achievement. And boy, is that true. It's one of the most beautiful, good films of you've ever seen. And in music, lots of music. Putting on the Ritz, Old Man River. I didn't even know this was a copyrighted song. I scream, you scream, we all scream for ice cream. That's a song. I didn't know that. I thought it was just something we said. Uh, it's wonderful, My Blue Heaven. And Louis Armstrong, speaking of Louis, his song, Potato Head Blues, is now entering the public domain. And in the film Manhattan, Woody Allen cites Potato Head Blues as one of the reasons life is worth living, and he's right. Well, you know, speaking of music, that is the subject of Inside Baseball this week. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and more importantly, how they affect you. And really, we're just doing a roundup of music news. And as we get closer to the Grammys on February 5th, De La Soul will finally hit streaming. Coachella announced its lineup. A major artist bought their music publishing rights rather than selling them. And the biggest hits of the year are getting smaller and smaller. And uh, Oh, the Grammys are February 5th. That means I just have two weeks to finish my best music of the year list. I've got a lot of music to listen to. I'm hoping we'll get our friend David Wild from Rolling Stone on the show. Of course, he's working hard on the Grammys and we've invited him and we're hoping he'll pop in the day after the show so we can talk with him about what goes on behind the scenes. But what's going on with De La Soul? Well, they are rising again. The legendary hip-hop artist made some of the most innovative and influential albums of the past 50 years thanks to their pioneering work in sampling. Unfortunately, they did it before clearing your samples became, you know, a thing. That means late albums, heavy on sampling, like, you know, Paul's Boutique, the, the Beastie Boys, are on streaming, while the tangled negotiations for De La Soul's debut, Three Feet High and Rising, they have that has kept their catalog hidden from view for like at least what 10 years recently their song the magic number was used in the animated hit spider-man into the spider-verse but no one could easily call it up now all the legal issues are worked out and the rich history of de la soul will finally be on major streamers starting march 3rd 
Uh, Three Feet High and Rising came out in 89, so try 32 years. <laughs> Right. Well, you know, Paul's Boutique was uh, like right around that time, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. But it was just they were just right on the bubble, you know, okay. and uh, De La Soul did not clear. They didn't think they had to. It was just the end of that era. So it's a real shame. But all their stuff got trapped there. And of course, their deal with Tommy Boy was also a roadblock. But the sampling was a big part of it. And you know what? Thank God, because if you can't be listened to easily. You're out of the conversation. That's one reason the Beatles said, we got to go on to streaming eventually, because if we don't, the kids are simply never going to hear us. They knew they had to be there to remain relevant and current. And so thank God, De La Soul, and hopefully there'll be a big comeback for them, and we'll be talking about them. But I know we're talking about Coachella. Coachella announced their big acts, a lot of acts, Bad Bunny, uh, Blackpink, and Frank Ocean are going to headline. And I want to know, Sperlin, are you going to headline? Are you headed to Coachella? I don't think so, and here's why. You know, I told you that you'd feel old Mm -hmm. uh, by, you know... Your daughters are going and you're staying at home. (laughs) No, I I looked at the 2023 lineup, and I looked at the headliners, and I can tell you that, yes, I I do know uh, Blackpink, I do know Bad Bunny, I know Bjork, I know Gorillaz. I know know Burna Boy, but, you know, not much by him. I know Charlie XCX, but that's about it. But isn't you know, that why you go? Like, isn't that why you go to discover and see new acts? Yeah, but uh, yes, but I'm like, who are like? I don't know any of these people. Like, that's why you go to con. But you go to con and you don't know what movies are going to be showing. You just go. Yeah, I mean, I, I you just are old. Wet leg. I'm like, I, I'm sure. Oh my god, they're great. Know. That's one of the best albums of the year. No, that would be that one of the actually. acts I'd say you have to see. Wet leg. You know, the funny thing is, as I said that, I was like, oh, I probably shouldn't have said that one because they're actually pretty good and I do know them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the, at some point, you're like, you know, me, I don't like festival shows. I'd much rather see an act in a, in a bar, you know. I'd much rather see an act on their own with a full set uh, rather than, well, I know they can do full sets, but you know what I mean. It's just a huge ex- event. It's I get the appeal, but I'd much rather see somebody in a club or a bar than go to a, an event with 50,000 people or whatever. And I actually bought my first concert ticket in three years. I'm seeing the Mavericks in Atlanta, February 17th, Friday night. If you're there, come by and say hi. I uh, can't wait to see them. They're one of the best live acts ever that I have ever seen. Great, great band. And it's at a venue where you get to stand up. The last few times I've seen them, I've had to sit down. That's just not the way to see the Mavericks. You want to be standing up because you want to move and have fun. And so I'm really excited. My first concert in three years. Well, but, you know, I'm, look, I'm looking at the lineup here, and I guess usually I would know a good, everybody. like, not 60%, everybody. No, 70%. Like, like 50, 50%. Here I'm looking, I'm like, I know a good, like 20, 20%. Like, I don't know, <laughs> I don't know any of these acts. I'm like, oh my well, God, is it, is it, am I that out of it? Well, now, we don't talk about sales anymore because that's not a useful metric, but, but Bad Bunny's album is the year's most consumed album, according to Billboard. It's the biggest album of the year in the U.S., and for the first time, that title goes to an album that is not in English. So another big barrier falls. Way to go, Bad Bunny. Yeah, I was surprised that uh, Frank Ocean uh, was... Closing, although I guess maybe they wanted a, an American, uh, or I, I don't know. I guess Bad Bunny's American, so yeah. I, I don't, I, I don't know. Frank Ocean is the the Sunday night closing act, uh-huh, well, whereas a- Blackpink gets that big that big uh, you know Saturday night headlining act. But no Lumineers. Well, that's no, what we're talking. Uh, that's Eric what we're talking Arcade. about, though. These the the big acts in the world are not just you know 
the big North American acts. There are people from all over the world. You've got Frank Ocean who's yeah. from America. You got Bad Bunny who's from America, but Blackpink, you know, that's that's a and Bad Bunny are global acts. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I once saw John in Spanish. Oh yeah, uh, uh, he could play, and and now oh, yeah. he'd pay himself when he played. They don't have uh, acts like that. That's more like in the UK where they're big festivals. They tend to have legacy acts more, I feel yeah. like, than Coachella does. Well, sometimes Coachella does. They'll do it like on a Sunday night or like Saturday early, like in the, in the sunset hour, they'll do like a reunion thing, like Pavement mm-hmm. or, or right. uh, Crowded House or, you know, The Cure will play for the first time in a while. Um, but, uh, you know, the reason I brought John Fogarty up is, you know, most songwriters are selling their rights, uh, to their publishing for big bucks. David Bowie did it. Well, actually his estate did it. Uh, and, uh, who else did it? Bob Uh, Dylan, the million people. Bob Dylan. Yes. Uh, but after 50, a 50 year battle, John Fogarty of Creedence Clearwater Revival, CCR there, he is buying them back. It caps a bitter battle with Label the label owner who controlled both the masters and the publishing for the stream of hits written almost solely by Fogarty. In a four-year span, Fogarty and his band released one classic song after another, Born on the Bayou, Bad Moon Rising, Down on the Corner, Fortunate Son, Have You Ever Seen the Rain? What about Put Me In Coach? Yeah, that's much Center later. Field. Much oh, later. Okay. Uh, Fogarty then spent a long time refusing to sing them because it would benefit the label owner rather than him. Now Fogarty owns a majority stake in them alongside Concord Records. Yeah, that's that's a, a great ending to the story. He had a bitter, bitter battle with Saul Zance of Fantasy Records, and the the music has now been bought by Concord, and Fogarty was able to come to a deal with them. He is the majority owner of these songs again after all these years. It's sweet, sweet satisfaction. It's like kind of like the- Paul McCartney. I feel bad that Paul doesn't own the Beatles. You know, Michael Jackson beat him out. Uh, to get those and whatever Michael Jackson outbid him, Paul, you should have bid more because it was worth it. You would have made your money back tenfold. And you know, it's cool when people can be in control of the stuff that they created. So uh, that's really a, a nice heartwarming story. And it's nice to see Joni Mitchell coming back and she's doing, she's going to do some shows with Brandy Carlisle next year. Uh, this year, I hope you get tickets. Um, and she's being honored with the Gershwin prize for songwriting. I'll bet she owns her publishing. Oh, yeah. I bet you she does. That is absolutely true. But, uh, you know, uh, it doesn't really matter because no matter what, if you have a hit song, it's getting streamed, right? We know that. Yep, yep. And and, uh, a few weeks ago, we shared an analysis from Music Business Worldwide that the top artists are proving less and less popular, actually. Looking at the streaming and sales they generate, the top five artists of 2022, they are generating, or were, since we're now in 2023, they're generating less interest than the top five songs of 2021. And then artists, artists, two- artists. Let me try this. <laughs> were you listening when we was, were you listening when we talked about this two weeks ago, three weeks ago? Yes. That's right. The big acts are less percentage wise and less pure attention. So if you were selling 10 million copies 10 years ago, now you're selling then 8 million, then 5 million, then 4 million. It's just, it's not right. just that the music pie is bigger and you're a smaller piece of a bigger pie. They're also generating less interest and in pure looking just at them alone. So the big artists are not as big as they used to be. And there's a lot more music. And now we find out, tell us the same thing's happening with songs. Yeah, you know, Harry Styles' Smash, as it was, it was played 607 million times, less than the biggest hit of 2021, which drew 627 plays. And that 
the 2021 song was less than the top song of 2020, which hit 917 million. I don't know what those songs were, uh, but it's also true for the top 10 as a whole. The 10 biggest songs drew less plays year after year and, of course, proved a smaller and smaller piece of the pie in overall streaming. I mean, the reasons are kind of obvious. More and more people can listen to deep catalog like the Beatles and CCR rather than just the new hits. More and more songs are being released diluting attention and more and more artists from around the world are garnering plays not just those in the uk or france or or the us so it's not just about the drakes and the lizzo's of today i would also argue that more and more people are relying on playlists so they just hit a playlist. Well, the, play- the playlists are actually proving less uh, sticky right now as well, unfortunately. So hate to yeah. undercut that comment. But yeah, the players were pushing the big names and the big acts and pushing new talent and getting them more attention. And the playlists are losing a little steam as well. So when you look at it overall, in 2017, just five years ago, one out of every 100 tracks was one of the 10 big hits of the year. So you were playing Despacito or It's Sharing Shape of You and the like over and over again. And that doesn't sound like a lot. It's just 1.2%, but that's of all songs that were streamed were the top 10. That was a lot. And that's declined every year. Then the top 10 tracks were just 0.8% of all streams, then 0.6%, then 0.5%. And now it's just 0.4%. That's a 66% decline in five years. It's been consistent and across the board in the artists and their overall impact, the top albums, and now the top songs. People are just not listening to them as much because you know what? They may be checking out Blackpink. They're checking out these acts from France. They can check out Joni Mitchell and start playing all her early albums because there's just no barrier to doing it. It's it, You're already paying for it. You've got access to it. It's a lot easier to do. Young people are listening to more classical music. So this isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's an important thing to note. Uh, it's well, an that's maybe why impo- Universal's Lucian Grange, uh, mm-hmm. he says... Streaming is broken. He's totally broken in his. Well, he's talking more about letter. the money and who it's going to. But that's right. He says every year he does a big letter where he, you know, opines on the industry, and he absolutely does. He says streaming is broken, and the fix, I don't know. He says I don't know, <laughs> but we got to do something. So a nice bit of humility there from Lucian Grange and Music Business Worldwide has a suggestion: we have got to raise the subscription price of streaming. The price has remained the same for too long. It can go up a dollar, and but more of that money needs to go to the songwriters and the artists because if you just keep the same formula, raising the price isn't going to fix the problem of inequality in terms of the people who create the music are getting less and less. More and more of it is going. To to the streamers themselves and to the labels, not to the acts who actually create it. So it's a big problem. But uh, music isn't dead. It's just being consumed in all new ways. And if that means more people decide to, hey, I'm going to check out Creedence Clearwater Revival, that ain't a bad thing. Music is not dead, but some people are, like guitarist Jeff Beck. He has died at the age of 78, inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He played with the Yardbirds, replacing Eric Clapton. Then he was replaced by Jimmy Page. That was the era of guitar gods. He turned on a chance to join the Rolling Stones. Uh, but there you go. He went solo, and he's a beloved guitarist, oh, kind of a jerk. Uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire, their drummer Fred White died at 67. Lisa Marie Presley, the daughter of Elvis, the wife briefly to Michael Jackson and Nicolas Cage. Her life was a tabloid headline, but, you know, she maintained her integrity when all was said and done. She's died unexpectedly at 54. And Robbie Bachman, the drummer and co-founder of the Canadian band Bachman Turner Overdrive, has died at 69. 
I never got to see any work by Tony-winning director Frank Galati. He died at the age of 79, a big player in Chicago with Steppenwolf, and two of his big acclaimed productions were The Grapes of Wrath, which I really wanted to see with Gary Sinise, and Ragtime. I saw a revival, but I never saw that original production. And just as we went to press, Italian movie star Gina Lola Brigida has died at 95. Uh, she had a career. She made the most of it. And honorary Oscar winner Owen Roisman has died at the age of 86. He was a five-time nominee as a cinematographer, and he won an honorary Oscar. The second film he ever shot was William Friedkin's The French Connection. Friedkin fired his first cinematographer, saw some little movie that hadn't been released yet that Roisman did, hired him and said, I want a gritty street photography sort of feel. And uh, Roisman said, sure, why not? <laughs> he had a great 70s, just like Hollywood. One great movie after another. He got an Emmy nomination for the TV special Liza with a Z. Then he did The Exorcist. Then Elaine May's The Heartbreak Kid. The Taking of Pelham, One, Two, Three. Robert Redford's Three Days of the Condor. And The Rose with Bette Midler and Network all topped off that decade. The 80s weren't so bad he was, either. He, he's a hack, basically. Yeah, the 80s weren't bad either with True Confessions, <laughs> Taps, Absence of Malice, Vision Quest. And to top it off, he made Dustin Hoffman look pretty good as a in Tootsie. Of course, he also did the Bee Gees flop, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Hey, maybe it looked good. I don't know. I've never seen it. And he did win the ASC's Lifetime Achievement Award. Uh, so a valuable, interesting career and a valuable, interesting show. We hope you enjoyed it. Yes, and you know what? You won't want to miss uh, our next episode. So subscribe to us on iTunes, the Google Podcast Store, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Spotify, anywhere you can get podcasts. You can usually find us. And in some of those podcast aggregators, those podcast marketplaces, you can rate and review our show. It does help us out when you do. You can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com, along with links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode. That is also where you can find Ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter. We're at showbizsandbox, our handle. And we're on Facebook, facebook.com slash showbizsandboxes, where you can like our page. Again, all that information is on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group, MGMT. They can be found on their own website. Who is MGMT.com? Michael Giltz can be found online, and every week he's got something new and exciting for us. What is it this week, Michael? This week it's Julian Oct underscore. So J U L I A N A C H T underscore on Instagram. That's a rapper that I met at the coffee shop Heaven inside a Methodist church in Cape Town, South Africa. Check him out. Uh, well, you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, but you can actually find some of his work on michaelgiltz.com. Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. Uh-huh.